This is Andy Revkin. In 1989, I spent four months roaming the Amazon rainforest of Brazil, researching the life, assassination, and legacy of Chico Mendes for my first book, The Burning Season. Mendes, raised in the forest, was a rubber tree tapper and union organizer who became an international leader of efforts to stem a rising tide of deforestation driven by largely lawless cattle ranchers and developers. When the book was first published in 1990, I made the rounds of TV and radio shows. One interview stood out, my hour-long conversation with the legendary historian and radio host Studs Terkel. Recently, Chicago's great WFMT radio network and the Chicago History Museum posted an archive of hundreds of Studs interviews, including mine, on the web. The Library of Congress and National Endowment for the Humanities supported the effort. The full archive is at studsterkel.org, S-T-U-D-S-T-E-R-K-E-L.org. Here's our conversation, which started with this haunting sound clip found by the show producers. Those sounds you hear, they're forest sounds, aren't they? Birds and all sorts of birds and sounds of insects. And in fact, it's from the Amazon forest, where perhaps more than anywhere else in the world there are so many. Millions of species of birds and flowers and insects. And of that Amazon forest you've been hearing and perhaps reading a great deal of what is happening there and how it affects us, what happens when the burning occurs, the deforestation occurs. And you may have heard of the case of a, one of the heroes of the tappers, the working people there, Chico Mendez's murder, and how the whole world's been alerted to something thanks to some heroes involved there. There are a good number, but some special ones. And Andrew Refkin is an excellent investigative journalist, science writer, written number of, a number of excellent pieces for Discover magazine as well as for the LA Times. And uh, he was there for a good deal of time, and out of it has come the book The Burning Season. The subtitle is The Murder of Chico Mendes and the Fight for the Amazon Rainforest. And let's start the beginning, Andrew. How you became about with these sounds represent mm. what? The most glorious collection of biological diversity on the planet is in the Amazon. It's a, maybe I'll set the scene by just drawing a bit of a mental picture of how big this place is, first of all. The, if you think of the Amazon River Basin as an area the size of the United States east of the Rocky Mountains, you have a good idea of what we're talking about. Think of the United States east of the Rockies as a single river valley that with about eight feet of rain dumped on it each year, so much rain that it forms a river that's 11 times the volume of the Mississippi. And the rain also nourishes this incredible assortment of life. It's an unparalleled uh, reservoir of life. One tree has been found to harbor 1,500 species of insect. Now, that's not individual critters. That's types of creature on one tree. And that doesn't include all the other things hanging on that tree. There might be dozens of different kinds of orchids, bromeliads, which are relatives of the pineapple, even cactus. There are cactus floating high in the canopy of the Amazon rainforest. And you look at one creature there, and then that creature is home to dozens of other creatures. A three-toed sloth, a mammal of the canopy. So how many species are there? I take it more than anywhere else in the world. Yeah. It's species of what? Of, of animal, insect, birds and uh, flowers. Right. Uh, one, 
an acre of Amazonian forest may contain 200 different tree species, and that's just tree species. Scientists really, in the last, just in the last just 10 years, they've raised the estimates of how many species are there by a factor of 10. It used to be they thought, well, maybe 2 million. Now they're saying maybe 10 million, and maybe more. So when one tree falls, when mm. one tree falls, it somehow has an effect far beyond the fall of one tree. That's it? right. And we have to remember, too, that the dynamic biological activity there has produced thousands of different chemicals, compounds, that are all part of this natural interaction of different species. It's sort of like chemical warfare constantly there. Every plant there produces compounds that fight insects, that fight fungi. And, so, and it turns out one out of four of our drugs that we use, that you look in your local drugstore, has some ingredient derived from tropical yeah. plants. So when we incinerate even an acre down there, we might be incinerating. And so we're kind of closer and closer mm -hmm. to the humans involved here, the forces involved in this thing, mm -hmm. and how it affects us. Even in 1988, there was talk, wasn't there, of an incredibly mm -hmm. hot season, beyond, right. and the word greenhouse came into mm -hmm. being, didn't it? Well, the, the, the way I got involved in this book, really, was um, that summer I was covering the greenhouse effect as it was unfolding. It, this was the first year, you know, I had been writing about the greenhouse effect as many other people had for many years, but this was the first time that the man on the street looked around him, mopped his sweaty brow, and said, something is going on here. I mean, there was one day, June 23, 1988, when a scientist testified before Congress that he had calculated the greenhouse effect was happening now, that same day, 45 cities from coast to coast had temperatures over 100 degrees. And, and the burning of anything, whether it's coal or gasoline or trees in the Amazon, contributes to this. And that it was that same year that people looked at the Amazon and s they estimated that a billion tons of carbon dioxide was being pumped into the atmosphere every year by those fires. So what happens down there and what has happened down there and may or may not happen down there affects us here in Chicago, say, That's right. anywhere, or anywhere else in That's right. The, we, the atmosphere is a continuum. Right. A Let's go back then. It's called, the your book is called The Burning Season, mm. and that has a meaning. It sure does. I, when I got down there last summer, summer of 89, uh, just about a year ago, the burning season was just starting to get underway. It, the really, the heart of it is from August to October, at least in western Amazonia. And this is the time when ranchers and small farmers set alight everything that they've chopped down earlier in the dry season, and everything gets nice and dried out under the sun and, and burns very easily. And uh, my introduction to the burning season came one night as I was driving out to Chico Mendez's hometown. Chambri. We'll ask about Chico in a moment. Yeah. I, I hitched a ride in the back of a pickup truck, and we're bouncing along this road in the darkness, and I look up ahead, and on both sides of the road, almost to the horizon, all you could see was this glowing landscape. It was like driving through a... Um, the raked-over remains of a campfire. Was, everything was glittering and glowing, and, and orange, and, and it was like hell, basically. So one man's burning is another man's uh, destruction of livelihood. Well, that's the, the basis of this, the story, and the conflict that killed Chico Mendez was this battle between... Oh, now we start. Yeah. Who, who is Chico Mendez? His name is now becoming yeah. internationally known, certainly among environmentalists. Yeah. Who um, is, shall we start at the beginning, don't we? Yeah, he started out life uh, as a rubber tapper, a seringueiro. Uh, We're talking about an, a, a town in Brazil. Right. Seringueiro means rubber tapper. Right. Now, who's a, what's a rubber tapper do? Well, his grandfather and his father were both rubber tappers also. It, uh, rubber tappers 
go out into the forest every day before dawn, and they take a circular trail, eight miles or maybe ten miles long, and each rubber tree that they pass, they slash the bark, just a little cut, diagonal slash, and they continue to the next tree, and the next, and the next, and uh, they position a little tin cup beneath each slash. Later that same day, usually, sometimes the next day, they'll walk the same trail again and harvest this milky latex that flows from these cuts. And when this is cured over a smoky fire, it uh, turns into something that we recognize as rubber. You can bounce it on the floor. And um, it became the basis 100 years ago for, for really one of the important bases for the Industrial Revolution. Tires, gaskets and steam engines, uh, insulation for electrical wiring were all came from forest trees. And these tappers, they evolved this, this lifestyle that was really balanced with the forest around them. If you tap a tree too much, the tree dies. So the rubber tappers don't destroy trees. And they call the trees their second mother, the rubber, ta the rubber trees. So, so they have this respect these for These are rubber ta tappers of the years now. Mm. Now rubber comes into being, and the importance of it. Right. Certainly with the automobile, before the automobile, what a rubber tapper. So somebody finds big, big dough involved here. Yeah, well, millions, billions. All of the dough, unfortunately, remained in the hands of the middlemen, the guy, the financiers in the towns along the main trunk of the Amazon, who sent all these guys into the forest a hundred years ago, and uh, they they advanced them the tools they needed to do basic work: their pots and pans, a couple machetes, a shotgun, and the the little special knife for cutting the tree. The problem is, and they, they sent the, these poor people from the northeast of Brazil into the forest expecting easy pickings. Of course, it was, it's not an easy life at all. Many of them died of diseases. And those who remained found themselves shackled in perpetual debt. They never paid off this. Uh, all of that equipment they were forwarded uh, was debited from their accounts, just like the old company store for in Appalachian towns. So the, the place, now Chico Mendes was a rubber tapper, his grandfather, he comes from uh, there's a legacy here, is there not? And there's a great art and skill involved here, yeah. too. A lot of the skill was learned from Indians. Uh, ah. Initially, the initial contact between rubber tappers and Indians was hostile. Uh, each, each perceived the other accurately as a, as a menace. And uh, it was only recently that the peoples of the forest, the tappers and Indians, have come together in an alliance. And Chico Mendes actually well, helped So he's this that. guy, a rubber tapper, uneducated, right. meets certain people along the way, right. but self-educated. And he also, the rubber tappers, like the Indians, know the forest, right. the life of the forest very well, don't they? Yeah, uh, everything around them is used, but only, but never abused. It's really interesting. You, you follow a rubber tapper along, and, and you can see the inherent respect. They don't take too much. They take what they need. They only hunt, for example, in a certain part of the forest for a certain length of time, and then they shift to a different part of the forest to let the, the creatures in the other section recover. And it was Chico, because of some key people he met in his life, and I relate this a little bit in, in the book, um, he met a, a renegade, a, a fugitive from Brazil's troubled uh, south, a, a revolutionary, really, who hid out in the forest. Tavora. And, right, and who learned how to tap rubber trees from some neighbors of Chico and who, in turn, he found this young kid, 12-year-old boy, eager to learn, with little more than that, though. Uh, but the two of them hit it off somehow, and he passed on to Chico this sense of uh, that there was more to life than being in debt all your life. And he passed on ideas about unionism and activism and organizing and how important it was to act as a group, not as an individual. 
and then he disappeared from Chico's life. But somehow the the spark had definitely transferred. Now that the idea of this rubber tapper, non-education, this is Chico, 12 years old, mm -hmm. 13, 14. The rubber tappers, did they ever organize before? Not really. No. Uh, they, they lived very individualistic lives. Each family is often isolated from their neighbors by f maybe a five-hour hike through the forest. They developed a certain self-sufficiency, but in order to break free of the debt servitude that they labored under, they really had to organize. And, and it, uh, timing played an important part here. Uh, Brazil had a military government starting in 1964, and by the mid-70s, the government was loosening up a little bit. They realized they couldn't maintain total totalitarian control, and they allowed the first unions to form in Brazil. And this union movement spread up to the Amazon, and Chico was one of the first people to help form a union of rural workers, most of them rubber tappers. And this was the first time that the, the people living in the forest really did start to come together in groups, and they accomplished quite a bit very quickly. Well, let's go back to Robert. Whom did they work for? Now we come to other influences and a certain family, too. Mm. Chico was murdered. We know oh Chico yeah. was murdered. And the family, that, uh, members of a family, the Alves, mm -hmm. Alves de Silva family, they're what? They were ranchers. And Ran they, now, you, we haven't talked about ranchers. Yeah, well, so. they represented a, a new wave that came into the Amazon starting really in the 1970s. Uh, the same military government that had control over Brazil until 1985 perceived the Amazon as just an empty wilderness uh, that was vulnerable to, to attack, really. They, they were very paranoid about this. Here's this region. It's more than half of Brazil's territory, the Amazon Basin, yet it contained just a fraction of the population. Yeah, that was what, Colombia? No, uh, uh, well, uh, the Amazon extends into about yeah. eight countries, yeah. actually, that ring the yeah. basin there. But uh, anyway, the military theorists decided they wanted to, as one put it, flood the Amazon with civilization. And they did this by starting to build a road network. They did it by doling out tax breaks, um, low-interest loans, all sorts of uh, financial benefits for cattle ranchers to move up there. Now, in Brazil, historically, cattle ranchers have been the pioneers. They're the ones who settle a territory first, and then come the farmers, and then come the businessmen, and then comes civilization. So it was natural that ranchers would be the first vanguard of this. And they, the ranchers perceived this same forest that the tappers harvested bounty from as nothing more than uh, an impediment, something to get rid of. And the simplest way to get rid of it is to chop it down, let it dry a little bit, and then the burning season comes. Because they want to range for the cattle. Right, and Brazilian law at the time said that uh, the best way to lay claim to land in, in, in the Amazon, in a wilderness, is to put it to what the technical term was productive use. Now in the Amazon, productive use could mean dis incinerating the forest and putting out a few head of cattle. Didn't have to be very many cattle. So many of these men also weren't, they weren't really ranchers. They were using ranching as just a ploy to collect the tax breaks and the low interest loans and to sit on this land that they knew would rise in value as it became more developed. And it was, it was inevitable that there would be a conflict between these people of the open spaces and the people of the forest. They're just, they're, they had totally different worldviews. And uh, the ranchers also, their worldview also included using violence to solve problems. In, in Brazil, the owning class, the ranching class, never had to worry too much about the law. Um, in the South, that was true for hundred or more years, and certainly ended up being true in the Amazon. And as Chico was among those who organized a resistance, 
to this invasion, rubber tappers started to die. Um, very violent, brutal deaths. His predecessor, Wilson Pinero. Right. One of the mentors who helped Chico uh, further into this movement that uh, his that Tavaro had, had started him on, uh, Pinero... Uh, Tavaro's the guy who taught... Uh, this revolutionary reign. Uh, Pinero was a, was a, another instinctive leader. He, he had wonderful qualities um, that I learned about by interviewing everyone who knew him. And uh, one night, again, he... It was, the movement clearly presented a serious threat to the, ranching, the ranchers and the power el elite there. And uh, one night they set a trap for him. They sent a couple guys to the Union Hall, and uh, they killed him, shot him a couple times. This is pretty well accepted as the fact, but also they never tried, are they? I mean, no. these guys get Which we have to come to. See, mm -hmm. we're talking to Andrew Refkin on a, a powerful work that reveals a great deal to us, not only about the rainforest, but about how it affects every, uh, certainly the whole environment in which we live. The mm -hmm. Burning Season, and it's published by Houghton Mifflin, and the subtitle is The Murder of Chico Mendes and the Fight for the Amazon Rainforest. We have to go into that now. And all the forces involved, perhaps a bit of the history, too, way back. Mm. It's a fascinating history of, mm. of the British and the tire manufacturers. Even a certain town called Manos mm -hmm. became a big, big town with all flamboyant. We have to talk about that in a mm. moment. We're resuming with Andrew Refkin and the burning season. So you've set the scene pretty well here. The history of the rubber tappers, the forest, we haven't talked about the nature of their livelihood and uh, the way they live. And one particular person, Chico Mendes, whose, whose murder apparently did more than just become an unsolved mm. story of just a rubber tapper killed by the gun thugs of the cattle boys. So let's go back to the beginning. Where did Chico live? We have to come to the area now. Mm. This town of Jaipuri. Yeah, Chapuri is Jaipuri. Uh, is one of the little towns that sprung up along the, this incredible network of rivers in the Amazon. There are about a thousand tributaries, some of them larger than the Mississippi. Anyway, he he lived in Chapuri, which uh, prospered during the rubber boom, early in the late 1800s. And then sort of the town fell into this quiescent period in the 1900s after the rubber boom went bust. Why was there a rubber boom? Because the well, use of rubber now. Well, it, it was a basis for so many parts of the Industrial Revolution, and particularly the transportation revolution that occurred around the turn of the century. The, there was a bicycle craze in the late 1890s, and that was founded on... There was a guy uh, who invented the inflatable tubular tire for bicycles, and suddenly everyone wanted a bicycle. Those tires are made of rubber, harvested in the Amazon. And then, of course, came the automobile. The automobile was the real, yeah. that was what really did it. Uh, suddenly, there was a vast market for rubber, and um, merchants made millions of dollars, um, again, by perpetuating this system of sending rubber tappers into the forest, l leaving them in debt and collecting all the profits downstream. In fact, the further down the river you got, the richer the people were. And there were towns like Manaus, which is... Um, in a way, the capital of the Amazon. Today, it's just the capital of one state. Now, this Amazon. is where in the north? Uh, it's sort of right in the middle. It's in the, the middle. middle. Mm -hmm. If you put a dot in the middle of this vast river basin, you'd see Manaus. And, and it's interesting that even today, it's now a city of 700,000 people, and there's only one partially paved road connecting it with the rest of Brazil. This area, it's important to keep in mind, is still 
even to the the heart, even to the majority of Brazilians, it's sort of a distant um, tropical Alaska. It's something way up there in that festering. When us once had a very very fancy opera house. And it's it actually it's just been renovated, <coughs> and for the first time in recent history, there've been operas performed. Who there. lived there? Who patronized the opera house? There, there were uh, there was a whole class of rubber barons who evolved from this trade. They were getting two or three dollars a pound for rubber at, at the turn of the century, and that's a time when a dollar went a long way. Uh, they what did the tappers get? Oh, uh, at that time, you know, I I really don't know. Yeah. But it was minimal. They were in debt. They remained in debt. Partially because they also were forbidden to learn to read, uh, so they couldn't add oh, or subtract. Oh, they were forbidden to learn to read. Right. Schools were outlawed in the Amazon by the uh, the rubber bosses, the estate bosses, because if you knew how to read and add and subtract, you could Dangerous. figure out you could figure out pretty quickly how much you were being cheated. So as the process, the profits accumulated in towns like um, Manaus, which which in interestingly enough, in the late 1800s, was bigger than Houston was at the time, hmm. uh, much bigger, twice as big. So. Uh, the historical trends are fascinating. Then came, what happened then? Then, well, then there was a collapse. The balloon popped when um, a British opportunist uh, smuggled some seeds, rubber tree seedling, seeds, out of the Amazon and sent them back to England. And then 22 of the seeds sprouted, and these seedlings were sent to Singapore, which was a British colony. And uh, interestingly enough, the pests, remember the Amazon again is this dynamic festering uh, war zone, the, the things that normally keep those trees from growing densely in the Amazon, various kinds of insects, fungi, and other things, didn't go to Singapore with these seedlings. Suddenly, people found they could grow rubber trees very close together in plantations, sort of like an apple orchard. Suddenly, you didn't have to walk 10 miles through the forest every day to harvest the rubber, and quickly it became a fraction of the cost. So then Asia produced rubber. Asia became the center of the rubber trade, and the Amazon quickly faded into somewhat of a backwater again. There was still significant rubber trade in the Amazon, and it remained significant yeah. through... But then came World War II. Right. Uh, the one thing that saved the Amazon <coughs> rubber trade from total uh, annihilation was uh, the war, when suddenly the Allies in the United States, we found ourselves cut off from access to those Asian plantations when Japan invaded southern Asia. And... Um, the only place to turn for all that rubber that we needed for uh, tank treads and truck tires and airplane tires and everything else had to come back from the Amazon again. And of course, that was also when a crash program began to start looking for synthetics. Uh, and a new wave of rubber tappers were sent into the forest by Brazil. Brazil signed an agreement with the American government to recruit tappers, send them, and they were called soldiers of rubber. Mm. This is the rubber war. It's a strange chapter in, in history. So they sent these men into the Amazon and told them Who glorious... Who were new tappers? Were, I mean, uh, Many of them came from the same stock, the same region yeah. of Brazil that the original yeah. wave of tappers came from, the, from the northeast. There's mm. this peninsula that juts out into the Atlantic, and it's been chronically uh, plagued with droughts for a hun hundred years. And it's always been the source of, of refugees of one sort or another. It was easy for uh, contractors to go out there and hire crews of rubber tappers and take them into the Amazon. So some of these some of these new recruits were told wild stories. They were told some of them one guy told uh, said that he was told that rubber grows on trees in 100 pounds balls and all you have to do is reach up and pick it. And uh, so they went readily and thousands of them died of malaria and thousands others those who survived 
stayed in the forest uh, along with the remnants of the earlier tapper culture who remained there after the previous rubber boom. So just at that, uh, several things are going on at the mm. same time, always were. Mm. The rubber tapper, new rubber tappers brought in and mm. believe the myths, and then there was the boom. And then the Indians, did they tap rubber too? There are some tribes who still do, yeah. uh, and they were the they taught. What's the, a, what was it? What tribe? What the the, the Kampa and the Kashinawa oh. also in Acre, the same state where Chico came from. Acre is is the state in which Shapuri is. Right, it's the westernmost uh, state in Brazil. Chico's t town. Yeah, it's way out there. If you so drew a line on the map straight south of Bangor, Maine, three thousand three hundred mm. miles, you'd be in Shapuri. <laughs> so what did the the Indians uh, do? Various lived by the forest. They tended to die <coughs> in large numbers more and more through the 20th and century. <coughs> for years, centuries, yeah. there's animosity between the Indians and the tappers. Right. And before the cattle barn, before the cattle, Henry, wasn't there talk of gold mining too? Yeah, gold mining actually <coughs> didn't grow in, uh, in the Amazon in a big way until really after the ranchers were already well on their way in. And it's restricted to some extent to certain parts of the of the Amazon. Uh, it's a terrible problem right now for a particular Indian tribe up in the north, uh, the Yanomami. And uh, tens of thousands of miners invaded their reservation illegally in the last few years and have brought in all sorts of diseases. And I just heard recently that the uh, rate of Indians dying from disease right now is about one or two a day. And this is a very, s the tribe only has about 20,000 people left. It's the last, and that's the largest remaining unassimilated mm culture in the Amazon. Now the miners also had a rough time. They found out things were not what cracked up to be. Yeah, it's not easy doing anything in the so Amazon. So who else came then? With the with the boom, where were, then came road building, roads, right. then came construction crews. Right. The other the other destructive trend in the Amazon was colonization projects that partially funded to by uh, the World Bank and other American and European private lenders who were eager to help Brazil develop and uh, one prong of Brazil's development scheme was to take all of these people, several millions of people who had been driven off the land in the south of Brazil and move them up to again what was still considered a, a wilderness. And they said, send them along these roads, give them a little plot of 30 acres or 100 acres and let them go. So now we have a situation before we were aware of environmental dangers. Mm. When was, the, you played a big role in this too, you and your colleagues. Mm. When did that come into the public uh, view? Well, in a big way, it didn't really become a big news. Of course, back around 1970, there was the first Earth Day, and there was a lot of talk about the environment at that time, but it still remained remained rather abstract, and problems then were visible ones, local problems. The, the sooty smoke coming out of car exhaust, which largely has been cleaned up now, but the larger, the issues, uh, the global issues, really mm -hmm. hadn't hit home yet. And that's called ecosystem. What's an ecosystem? It's, a, it's an ecosystem, I, I guess, is a discrete unit of biological activity, uh, a rainforest that has borders and that has cycles. Uh, one leaf falls, gets taken apart by ants and fungi and comes back through the roots of the tree and into the tree again. It's, so it's, it's a, somewhat of a closed system. Cycles. But mm. the global aspect was just about, but before the global aspect, we're going to come to visitors who came there, because mm. a great deal of irony is involved here too. Mm -hmm. uh, the commercialization of it. Mm. But before that, we have a setup then, don't we? The rubber tappers beginning, for people like Chico Mendes, begin to realize something's been wrong for centuries, right. hundreds of years. Uh, the Indians 
knocked around and about before oh, yeah. they coalesce with them together. Mm. We have the ranchers coming in, mm -hmm. and we have the big rubber manufacturers, of mm -hmm. course, don't we? Mm -hmm. And uh, I suppose Goodyear and, and all those play a big role in this. Well, only early on. Again, the Amazons today is, is pretty much a backwater when it comes to rubber. The, it's still a significant part of Brazilian industry. Brazil's industry mm. buys a substantial amount of its rubber in the Amazon. But, um, so it's a small-scale trade at this point. The key development that occurred around 1980 or so, late 70s, was these tappers organized a strategy for protecting the forest that was so important to them, and we've recently learned is so important to us. They developed uh, this uh, aggressive action called an empate, this defense of the forest. It's like the first line of defense. When tappers would hear of a chainsaw crew coming into the forest, into that quiet place where you hear bird sounds and insects and not much else, and suddenly you hear this screeching sound and crashing of trees, they would uh, rush and collect uh, dozens and sometimes hundreds of people and confront these crews and order them to put down their saws and get out of there. I went along on an empate one day. Who confronts them, you say? The, the tappers, would, the confront, tappers do, yeah. would confront these crews. And uh, I went along one day with a group of s two dozen rubber tappers who had heard about a cutting crew. This was last August. And we marched through the forest for about two hours and came out to a clearing. And you could hear the saws whining in the distance. They came up to these people and said, you know, you have no right to be here. This is illegal cutting. Let's go back to your camp and talk about this. And they escorted the crew back to their camp. And uh, after a little while, the tappers said, okay, enough of this. Uh, you should not be here, and you must go. And then the rubber tappers picked up these same chainsaws that just a half hour earlier had been used to destroy the forest, and they turned the chainsaws on the shacks of these cutters. And within three minutes, literally, they reduced the shacks to piles of scrap wood, and the crews had no choice but to return to town. But what about the guys who hired the crew? Did, was, well, it, was there a retribution? Well, was right. It's, it was this kind of tactic that yeah. got the ranchers angry. These crews were hired for a couple bucks a day yeah. apiece to do the dirty work for the ranchers. The ranchers were cutting down these trees for more range for the cattle. Right. And again, their concern was more to gain control over the land than to raise cattle for profit. Because as anyone who's seen a cattle ranch in the Amazon can clearly see, it, it's not profitable. It, it's devastating to the landscape. After a few years, most of the uh, pasture gets overgrown with inedible weeds, and they have to cut down more trees to get new pasture land for their cattle. And it's just a... So we're talking about two groups of people on two different wavelengths, mm -hmm. two different values mm -hmm. involved here. And we come to... We have to come to Chico and right. what is happening today, and always how we're connected with it. Mm. The burning season, and my guest is Andrew Rethkin, as you can gather, is in on it, <laughs> very much so. Houghton Mifflin publishes this quite remarkable book. The subtitle is The Murder of Chico Mendes and mm. the Fight for the Amazon Rainforest. So resuming with Andrew Rethkin and the situation, <laughs> This this is the background. Mm -hmm. There earlier naturalists came there. Mm. By the, that's true, isn't it? Sort of Darwinian type oh, yeah. naturalists came there because mm. that was a great spot mm. for their theories too. The the great evolutionary theorists all got their start in the rainforest of the Amazon. Darwin, Wallace, and others. And ever since then, there's been a growing body of knowledge about how extraordinary the rainforests of the Earth are as a unique system that. Another strange irony is, as the ranchers discovered when they cut down the forest, 
It's uh, somewhat like a big green castle built on sand. The underlying soils are largely infertile. So when the ranchers cut down this, this dynamo, they found underneath it not much to support their activity. As it turns out, the Amazon rainforests are somewhat of a closed loop. When a, for a leaf falls from the canopy 150 feet up, drifts down to the forest floor, it immediately gets recycled. Uh, yeah. We could all learn lessons from that, perhaps. Yeah. But by the way, this story, really, this battle, is almost a microcosm, mm -hmm. isn't it, yeah. of a battle generally of forces today, mm. uh, pro-anti-environmental, mm -hmm. but using even that's a metaphor, too, for everything, for power mm -hmm. is against powerlessness, and the powerless suddenly find a voice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the voice, in this case, is Chico Mendes. Yeah, we and back to him again. We started to hear his voice increasingly in the mid-'80s when he made new alliances with a group of environmentalists. This was a new a novelty in the Amazon. The, there weren't. Chico didn't even know the word ecologia, ecology, until about 1985. And these new allies were very interested in bringing him out of the forest and down to the cities of the south of Brazil and then up, to, up here even to Washington and eventually even to London to tell the rest of the world that... Um, this isn't some empty wilderness. Along with being a fragile ecosystem, it's also a home to tens of thousands of Indians and rubber tappers who were living in harmony with the forest and who were the best defenders of the forest, and they needed our help. That's the message he brought up here to the World Bank to try to stop those road paving projects the bank was spending a half billion dollars supporting and to talk to American senators like uh, Kasten from Wisconsin who had the power to pull the plug on the World Bank, potentially, uh, by canceling America's contribution, annual billion-dollar contribution to their operating funds. And Mendez did come up here, and he did say to the bankers and politicians and environmentalists that, that the people who knew best how to use the forest weren't being consulted in all of these big mega-projects, and, and, and they should listen to him. And uh, he became an, a bit of an international spokesman. Some people compared him to sort of a Daniel Boone, you know, who came into town from the... What was the reaction from the World Bank? They, they started to listen. Um, there were several environmental groups in Washington who decided to wage a campaign to get the World Bank to, to change its ways and take into account the environmental and social impacts of these big projects, whether they be dams or roads or whatever, all around the world. And this is not just in the Amazon. The World Bank and other multilateral banks and private lenders were supporting destructive projects. And the Amazon was just one example. And this was one of the first examples of the bank listening to, or being forced to listen to, a local a representative of local interests, a grassroots voice. And this also didn't please the ranchers and the power brokers back in the Amazon. Chico was becoming, again, too effective by pressuring the banks to cut off loans. He, he was threatening... Another aspect of their livelihood, which was the profits they made from rising land values. If you stop the paving of roads, suddenly the escalating values stop as well. So there was clearly a decision made to start taking out certain leaders of this movement of the forest peoples, and Chico was uh, on the list. A list, list negra. Of these are the ranchers now. Yeah, yeah. And there's one particular family here in this oh, area. Oh, yeah. There's an old guy named... Sebastian. I had a, a couple of extraordinary conversations with Sebastian Alves. He was the, sort of the patriarch of this clan, the Alves family. They started out in the south of Brazil back in the 50s, 
And they developed a long tradition through three generations of using violence to solve problems. Even as ranchers go, they were way at the top on the scale of ruthlessness. And uh, Sebastian told me as we sat there on his porch. Oh, you met him. Oh, oh yeah. We, we uh, spent about four hours together all together. And uh, he's a very genial old coot with a sort of bristly little beard and silver hair. Rather nice looking. Looked like anybody's grandfather. But he very flatly told about the time he killed a guy down in the south of Brazil. And he confessed the, gr the crime only because he had a vision from God telling him to confess. And he said that Chico just happened to live too long. He, yeah, the words, exact words were, Chico Mendes spent too, too much time alive. And then uh, he, he told me, he, he continued to deny that the family had involvement in the murder. But at the same time, he said some horrific things. Like, I really, I could read you. Go one. ahead. Please do. He said... I'll read a passage from the epilogue. As the clouds darkened above him, Sebastian denied his family's involvement in the murder. We're not violent people, he said, but if someone starts to treat you badly, to push you, to beat you, you have two choices. You can go look for justice, or you can find a gun and kill the man. He said, in Brazil, it's not likely that you will find justice through the courts or police. If you show me a sheriff or soldier who obeys the law, then I won't kill anyone, he said. And... Again, it was quite clear. The subtext was all along that Chico had gotten in their way and, and deserved and everything he was his he grandson who probably did it. And, but, and his mm. son is quite a... Oh, a work of art. Yeah. yeah uh, I met with Darlie in prison. And Darlie is the son. Right. He's about 60. Uh -huh. And uh, he has more than 20 children. And several of them have now been convicted of various crimes. Yeah. Darlie said to me in prison... He said, well, my lawyer told me to just put up my hammock and rock a while. Uh, soon I'll be out and there's no problem. And uh, regrettably, he may be right about that. And his son right now is also in prison. They're waiting trial. Uh, they've been waiting for trial for a while. Um, and it isn't clear that they will actually get to that judgment. Now, families such as these pretty much have, have had immunity, have they? Right. Not in the locales where they are. Because yeah. now we come to the Brazilian government itself mm -hmm. in the past, we're talking yeah. for the past decades. Yeah, well, the government has been a tool for the power. Now, there was a guy named Goulart who was knocked off. Uh, that mm. He was knocked off his job by with the help of the CIA. Right. We know it. It's right. pretty much acknowledged now. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. And then after him, he was rather democratically elected, if I recall correctly. Well, he was the last uh, for, a long, yeah. for 25 years, right? Then, then there was this period of military rule until 1985. And it was families such as the Dalva's family of mm. Sebastian and mm. his children and grandchildren who had pretty much immunity. Yeah, in the Amazon, there's not much in the way of justice. There hasn't been for a long time. There have been about a thousand killings along the lines of Chico's killing in rural Brazil as a whole over the last 10 years. And half of those have occurred in the Amazon, even though it only has a tenth of Brazil's population. So the Amazon is the center yeah. of this this viol using violence to prevent the... See, what you've done in the book, it's also a great detective story. I mean, you've done it also. You, you've recreated what mm. quite obviously the murder of Chico Mendes, and you show even how the newspaper was owned by the ranchers. Yeah. How the newspaper guys of that paper were there long before others, so they knew yeah. it was planned. Yeah, this family, the Alvises, clearly had a, they had a personal beef with Chico. He had taken away from them, in effect, a, a parcel of land that they had coveted. He had it, he had it uh, dis disappropriated by the government and turned into a reserve. But at the same time, anyone who doubts that there are others in Acre who were also in on it need only read the 
the local paper that was owned by right-wing ranchers. Ojo Branco is the name of the paper. And two weeks before Mendez was killed, a little more than two weeks, the paper ran a little anonymous item, a uh, chilling little item, said, soon here in Acre there will be uh, a 200 megaton bomb will explode. This will have important national repercussions. Important people will be harmed when this is done. You can be sure that the bearer of this news is trustworthy. And then two weeks later, Chico was murdered. And this is not a place where there are explosive events of any kind happening with any regularity. And then, as you say, uh, 90 minutes after the the shotgun blast was fired, uh, this team of reporters and a photographer from the paper miraculously appeared on Chico's doorstep. By the way, it's in 90 minutes. It takes about three hours to get there. Well, that's that's what's so miraculous about it. Uh, In fact, the same night that they made this epic drive from the capital of the state to Chico's town, Chaparri, uh, in 90 minutes. It took the sheriff six hours to make the same drive. Now, and I, I drove that stretch or rode in a truck in that stretch about 10 times at least. And there are potholes the size of bathtubs. And uh, I was there during the dry season, and this happened in the rainy season when the road is half swamp. It's, it's truly incredible that so they could have So the reporters of uh, Orio Branco? Yeah. Yeah. got there, and I mean, they obviously knew it was going to happen. Well, it'd be hard to find another yeah, explanation. Yeah. But now we come to Chico. Something happened on a, that the ranchers did not expect. Right. Chico's murder and the funeral, and now mm. something happened. Well, when I spoke to Darlie in prison, who's accused of ordering Darlie the killing of the, of the, the Alves family. family, he said to me, you know, I never knew how, how important Chico was. Nobody ever knew. He said, and it's true, in the Amazon, despite the fact that Chico had already been interviewed by reporters from papers in London and uh, Washington, and the, the New York Times ran a story on page 8 with a photograph and back in 1987, and he had met senators and, and had become somewhat influential. In, in the town he lived in and in the state he, Chico lived in, there was still little recognition of what this all meant. And, of course, what it meant was when that trigger was pulled, Uh, Chico's friends uh, got on the phone that night, and within hours, this network of communication had spread the word, and within days, dozens of reporters from all over the world converged on the Amazon, and suddenly the forests, the larger crime, as well as this murder, became the focus of the media. Uh, Unfortunately, it took this killing to do it, but this really stunned everyone in Brazil from the top down. It's ironic, too. Mm. It's really ironic. Now, also, filmmakers and all others are yeah. there, too. In fact, That's it's right. battling for right... Ho- Hollywood descended like and a plague, and uh, and the widow was wooed uh, with all sorts of offers, and it really disrupted the movement, also. Uh, but by the way, a lot of young... Before, the, a lot of young environmentalists and students... Mm. Who is Douglas Daly? Oh, yeah, Doug Daly is a botanist at the New York Botanical Garden, who I ran into in the forest there. He was leading a class of 20 or 30 Brazilian students around the forest, teaching them w- some of those interactions that occur in this biological system, uh, so little of which we know. Um, and uh, there was an increasing influx of interest of interested people from the United States and, and even initi- from Brazil as well. So, uh, botanists and biologists began to go into the Amazon, increasing numbers. And they reported these amazing facts and figures. Uh, one one uh, ichthyologist, one fish specialist, found he has personally discovered a fourth of all the fish species in the Amazon River, 500 out of the 2,000 known species. That's as many species as there are in the Atlantic Ocean. And... 
and and uh, others reported other things. This Terry Irwin, a scientist from the Smithsonian Institution, he found he looked at one tree. He's the one who looked at that one tree in the Peruvian Amazon and discovered it was home to, as I said earlier, mm -hmm. uh, 1,500 species of insects. And, and this uh, reemphasized how important this area was. And so there's a richness here. That mm -hmm. Now, we're coming to something that's happened as a result of the murder of Chico mm. Mendes, mm. the funeral. And the church, of course, they had many of the priests who had base, what are base communities? Well, the church played an important role uh, in Brazil in organizing rural, rural peoples and also the urban poor into activist blocks. Uh, the church had been sort of the last refuge for activists during the military period of military rule in Brazil. And uh, when re military rule was relaxed, the church was the first to come out and begin to search for leadership in the communities out in the forest and also in other parts of Brazil. So some, I'm sorry. No, and they, so they, they helped Chico organize... So we have to come to the last part of it. Mm. We'll take our last break. Come to mm. what now? And also, uh, the, uh, with the new the new regime in Brazil, it's surprisingly uh, something that's wholly unexpected. Mm. And the appointment of an environmental minister there named Lutzenberg, who I think was very friendly to the idea of Chico Mendes. Mm -hmm. As we come to that, we're talking to Andrew Rethkin in the book The Burning Season. And in a moment, the last lap. So resuming for the last round with Anderefk in the burning season. So was Chico's funeral seemed to be the, the, the call <coughs> for the Tappers and the Indians together now and environmentalists different parts of the world. Mm. And we also had, had an election recently in Brazil. Right. Um, I might start by just saying that Chico's murder and the funeral capped what was again this year when we all started to understand that things in the planet are linked, that the burning of the Amazon was a catastrophe for all of us. And then came this personal tragedy <coughs> on top of it, and it, in a way, humanized the story, actually in a way that the media requires. You, you, somehow, stories have to be encapsulated. Yeah. And Chico's life and death uh, did serve that purpose. But Chico's death also served the purpose of, for the first time, forcing Brazil to change its tune regarding the Amazon. And the new president who was elected and uh, is the first free elections in Brazil since 1962, no, 60, which that was the year that Goulart got elected. The first, this president, Collor de Mello, the new one, seems to be greening, <laughs> seems to be uh, changing uh, his policies toward the Amazon. He hired as his secretary of the environment an old friend of Chico Mendes and one of Brazil's leading environmentalists, José Lutzenberger, to... Uh, oversee the salvation of the Amazon. And this is a government until till this time, which had been bent on really dis just developing it, hell-bent kind of development, regardless of the environment. And uh, even the outgoing president of Brazil, José Sarney, who had such a woeful record on almost every department, uh, gave a going-away present to the country. He created a series of five extractive reserves in the Amazon. This well, was the extractive reserves, the phrase we haven't used, perhaps right. the word explain that. Well, Chico Mendes and his allies created this idea for, uh, along the lines of an Indian reserve, but its area set aside only for sustainable uses. The forest must stand, and you can harvest things from it, like rubber, Brazil nuts, medicinal plants, whatever, but uh, you can't cut the trees. 
And uh, Sarnay created five extractive reserves totaling an area about the size of the state of Massachusetts, 7,000 square miles or so. Now, by Amazonian standards, keep in mind, two Californias' worth of forests have been cut down over the last 10 years alone. So a Massachusetts is a small, small change, but it's still a giant step for Brazil. To It's like a sea change. It's, it's really a, the tide has changed there. And there is a recognition that perhaps the standing forest has enough value that it should be preserved for, for that sake alone. So they're, they're encouraging signs. And even there's even been a, the, the inkling of, of justice in the Amazon. Uh, two of the sons from this Alves family, Darcy and Olasi. Darcy is the one who's accused of pulling the trigger on Chico. But these two sons have now just been convicted and sentenced to 12 years in prison for a prior shooting of two teenage rubber tappers at a demonstration that Chico had organized earlier in 88. So uh, it's a good sign. Again, but that doesn't mean we can be lax here or or anywhere else. So it's all happened at a certain moment, too, mm. other than uh, more environmental anxiety and understanding. Mm. Mm. And Chico mended his rise and death, uh, the tapper. So it's an awareness. Mm. Now there's a global aspect mm. to it. And there are other things we can do up here besides be concerned. We have to translate that concern into action. Uh, and uh, In the book, I list some there's a resource guide that lists organizations both here and in Brazil that are working with the rubber tappers and Indians to try to devise more strategies for preserving the forest and harvesting bounty from the forest. We haven't, you just read one little part of your book, your writing is very good, perhaps just to end it. No, uh, perhaps the last passage or mm. some other mm. passage you may have marked, mm -hmm. uh, just an example of the, the drama of sure. the situation itself and the work of, of Andrew Refkin. I guess. The Burning Season is the book, and the murder of Chico Mendes and the fight for the Amazon rainforest mm. in Houghton Mifflin. Mm. And I suppose one last thing is the connecting link, isn't there? The fact mm. what happens there is not removed from us anymore. Mm. This well, is the point. No longer is that yeah. the case. Well, if anything points that out, it's a, a couple of photos that I, I actually got these from NASA that are in the book that one of which shows the Amazon, it was taken from the space shuttle. It was the first flight of the space shuttle after the Challenger disaster. And one of the astronauts started snapping pictures of the Amazon basin down below, 120 feet down, 120 miles down, excuse me. And uh, this was at the height of the burning season, September of 88. And this picture shows a cloud of smoke the size of India. Oh. This is not a small yeah. problem. And there was a little smudge in the center of the photograph, and that was a fire that they estimate was the size of all of the fires in Yellowstone National Park. Yeah. So we're not too far. We're not too far. We in Chicago, and he said, not too mm. far at all from the Amazon forest. Mm. What happens there, indeed, does affect what happens here. That much we know, mm. as far as environment is concerned. We know mm. it now. And thanks to you, we have a, a dramatic... Uh, view of it too and we'll after you read that passage we'll hear those birds again and those sounds mm. and those insects sounds of life and of nature and thank you very much it's a pleasure to begin reading the burning season andrew refkin my guest well i'll read i'll read the very end of the book i, I end the book on somewhat of an up note I, I think there is hope and i met with some rubber tappers very deep in the forest far even from where chico had worked and these were people who had never met him and one he didn't even know who he was he thought he was an old rubber baron. They said, oh, Chico Mendes, wasn't he a seringalista? Which means a, a rubber baroness. And we sat, and, and they explained why they wanted to stay in the forest. And I'll just read a little here. 
Joao and the other rubber tappers talked well past midnight until the generators were turned off. The air had begun to chill, and condensing mist thickened over the river and flowed into the village. It was nearly a full moon, and there was supposed to be an eclipse in a couple of days. And Joao told one last story about the wonders of the forest that made them want to stay. At dusk one evening, he said, he was walking home along a rubber trail, surrounded by the buzz of cicadas and whoops of nightbirds. He did not like to hunt, and so was carrying only a dull, small knife. That's why he became nervous when he heard some large animal crashing in the brush up ahead. He crept forward, and in the dim half-light he saw a large jaguar, the biggest he had ever seen. He froze and watched as the jaguar circle and circled and then lay down, completely blocking the trail and oblivious of his presence. The jaguar lazily rolled over, stretched and twisted from side to side, scratching its back. Now, Joao realized that the jaguar had no intention of hurting him, and he had no intention of hurting the jaguar, but it was getting late, and he did need to get home. So finally, he held his dull knife ready, just in case, and he spoke to the animal. Jaguar, he said, I need to pass. And the cat leaped from the trail and vanished into the forest. Now, just before everyone wandered off to find a place that night to string a hammock, Joao's friend Antonio tried to imagine the world that the ranchers wanted to create, the world of open spaces that had already appeared in eastern Acre and was just starting to eat at the jungle along their Jurua River. He could not imagine it. His forested world was so complete that any alternative was unthinkable. If they cut the trees, how can anyone live, Antonio asked. Can you imagine a country that has only pasture and cattle without trees and man? He did not even consider the possibility that there might be men who were able to live outside the forest. That is no country. Nothing will grow there. There is no game there, he said. The ranchers will die in that kind of country. For him, and he hoped for his children, the forest was truly home. This was the fundamental bond between a man and his environment that had been the basis for Chico Mendez's own passionate defense of the Amazon. It was an intimate connection, transcending global considerations in political battles and personal conflicts. As Antonio said, the life of the rubber tapper is very hard, but it is much better than the life in the towns. It won't be easy, even with the cooperatives and the unions, we have to start our lives from the beginning, but we need to try. It's hard for me to be outside the forest. When I was down the river to the city once, I started to get a big pain in my head. It only went away when I came back and was on my trail going home.